two of the most powerful gospels over the last two Sundays, huh? Certainly very, very pointed at the area of forgiveness and mercy and, and recognizing the importance of that, not only in terms of extending that kind of forgiveness and mercy, but trusting in it for ourselves. I wasn't able to be with you last week unless I happened to have seen you over at St. James. But the, uh, the story of the prodigal son, as I've often mentioned, is perhaps the most compelling uh, parable in all of Scripture. Uh, I, I've often contended if I had just uh, uh, 10 minutes for someone whose life was coming to an end and who was lucid enough to be in an, in an exchange with me, that uh, the last thing I would want before their, their death to take place is to encounter Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, but more accurately, uh, the parable of the forgiving father. Forgiveness is all over this. And of course, we know from last week's reading that the son, the youngest son, did something that I think in any generation would be quite unusual. While the father is still alive and in good health, he asked for half of his estate, that part that he has coming to him. And it, it's, it's very hard to imagine a father agreeing to that, but this one does. And of course, we're well aware that he squanders uh, his fortune on dissolute living, and he reaches genuinely desperate straits when he not only has spent the fortune that he got from his father, but he's also, in order to survive, is tending to the pigs. And as we well know, you can't get any lower as a Jewish boy than tending pigs. In fact, he wanted to eat what the pigs were eating, but he had nothing. And then in one of the, well, I think the pivotal sentence of that parable, then he came to his senses. Huh? Then he came to his senses. Even my father's hired hands have more than enough to eat. And here I am starving. I will go to my father and I will say, Father, I've sinned against God and against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. And of course, uh, we, we know that as he sets off, a couple other things happen that really again, highlight this forgiving father. It says that while he was still a long way off, his father spots him and races out to greet him. Now, we can be sure that probably for this length of time, it may have been months, it may have even been a couple of years that the son was away, the father every day would scan the horizon. Is this the day my boy comes home? So when he does spot him, he races out, of course, and uh, welcomes him. He instructs his servants to get sandals for his feet because they're undoubtedly he sold everything here in his poverty. Uh, get a ring that identifies him as the son of the man. Uh, to get a cloak for his shoulders because of those chilly desert nights. And to kill the fatted calf. My son was lost and is now found. We thought he was dead, but he's alive. And we know, of course, in, in, in the, the contrast between this forgiving father and the resentful, dutiful son, the older son, is also very obvious there. But I'm going to leave that particular parable because we focused on that last week and turn to this parable, which is quite gentle in nature, although there's a harshness to it that, that uh, interrupts Jesus' teaching. 
It's clear that the, uh, the, the chief priests, Pharisees, scribes, they want to trap Jesus. They want him to commit some mistake. They want some reason to be able to put him to death. And then, so they, they start with something that they probably suspect would be difficult for Jesus. He says, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And he does something that seems a little unusual, and yet it makes a lot of sense too. He, he bends down, knees on the ground, and he writes with his finger in the dirt there. Probably done that before as youngsters growing up, whatever. But people have speculated that what he was writing into the dirt were the sins of the two or three leaders of the group, the ones who were closest to him, the ones who were engaged in dialogue. And so he gets down and with his finger, I think he writes out the sins of those people, which I think staggers them a bit, understandably. And, uh, and then when, uh, when they continue asking about it, he straightens up and has that famous uh, statement, let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. First of all, it's uh, savage to think of a, a death by stoning. We know that uh, St. Paul, the great missionary, came close to death on a couple of occasions when he was stoned, but they are throwing big rocks at people, and the intent is to kill them. And, and so I think this was a situation where uh, the woman, terrified, uh, and with these people ready to, to uh, condemn her and attack her and execute her, uh, she basically is at Jesus' mercy. And, uh, but after Jesus says, let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, and once he's lowered himself to write in the dirt again, and chances are that might have been the sins of people who couldn't see his first writing, but basically letting them know, hey, I know your sinfulness. I know the ways that you fall short. Don't you be taking on an attitude of judging this woman. And of course, we want to remember that what she's being charged with here is adultery. And adultery meant the same thing back then as it does now. It's not prostitution. It was not a case of, of the public sinners. That's the, the two categories that the the uh, Jews most despised uh, uh, were certainly the, uh, uh, the, the tax collectors, but also the public sinners. That would be the, the, the prostitutes, the women of the evening, whatever. In this case, chances are that there were a number of people in that crowd holding on to rocks ready to throw that were guilty of adultery. I mean, that, uh, that wasn't that uncommon back then any more than now. And, uh, and it's clear that Jesus wants them to see their sin in the same light. And there's a little bit of the man-woman thing there. I, I think women were judged more harshly on this than what men were. But in any case, while he's still down uh, writing on the ground, the, uh, uh, the one by one, I mean, they come to realize they've, they've been, you know, revealed. I mean, at least in their own mind, uh, when they see Jesus write out their sins, that they've been exposed. One by one, they 
heart. They go a, a different way. And Jesus says, woman, where are they? And she probably still trembling at, at the, how close she came to being stoned. When Jesus says, has no one condemned you? She says, no one, sir. Jesus, the gentle, forgiving, merciful judge that he is, says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Now, is that an unreasonable request? We know that we're all sinners. And we know it's uh, hard to honor a pledge that, pledge that says we will sin no more. But I think he was focusing on this sin, this particular sin that she was being condemned for. And we can make that kind of judgment that I'm not going to enter into that kind of sin. But the combination of last week, this week, uh, the mercy and, and uh, uh, justice that, that gets shown to the people, they're a perfect uh, uh, pair to uh, have together on this uh, fourth and fifth Sunday of Lent. Next week, of course, we'll be heading into uh, uh, Holy Week. Uh, most of you remember, and I alluded to this at the beginning of Mass, that, uh, 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 that we who... Uh, attend that Mass, do so with a sense of celebrating two days, the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, a Palm Sunday uh, passage, and then when we get to the part of the Gospel, next week will be the Gospel of Luke, it's Luke's cycle, so we will proclaim the passion of Jesus Christ according to Luke, we'll have it done in parts, we'll have uh, Jesus, the speaker, the narrator, and, uh, and of course, then on Good Friday, as we begin the uh, East, uh, as we begin the Easter Triduum on Holy Thursday night, and then on Good Friday, then as we always do on Good Friday, we have the Passion of the Christ according to the Gospel of John, uh, and we'll again have uh, an involvement with that. Uh, I, the uh, I know that the uh, the diocese has been really pushing for. Uh, merged parishes to only celebrate one place. And so I, I suspect that the afternoon proclamation of the Passion will be over at St. James. Uh, but we, we will have a, a chance in, in that Holy Week to intensify our sense of preparation, uh, to, to, to increase our level of prayer, our, our, our fasting, our, our almsgiving. And, and I think uh, we always hope with each passing year, with each upcoming Easter, that we're embracing still more certainly the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, that we understand how central Easter is to our faith. St. Paul says it, and it's true, without Easter we have no faith. Without the risen Christ we have no faith. But we believe in the risen Christ. We believe in the crucified Christ who died for the sins of of the woman here in the gospel and, and for the prodigal sons that are out there and even the dutiful sons, that we have that extraordinary sacrifice of, uh, of life and, uh, and of, of, of struggle that he has had to endure. And we, we embrace it. We embrace that shared story that we all hold on to. And, uh, and I look forward. I won't be with you if the schedule is correct, and I think we maintain that. A second Sunday. Uh, I will be with you Easter Sunday, 
but uh, I'll be at St. James on Palm Sunday and Father Cousy will be here. But uh, I'm sure I'll see you off and on during the course of the next couple of weeks and uh, know that my best Easter wishes are with you.